Hello, and welcome to LSA Sermon-Based Podcast. Today, Pastor Brian McGuffin is going to be doing a one-off called Foolish Wisdom. And now, here is Brian McGuffin. Good morning. So good to see all of you here this morning. There was a wonderful sound. Did you hear that baby cry? Oh, I don't know what it is, man. Maybe I'm wanting grandkids or something, but uh, that sound, maybe because we don't have children in here very often, but when you hear that baby cry, you go, life. The church is good. The church is a family. The church is alive. Great things are happening, all because of a little baby's cry. Now, at three in the morning, not so much, but right now in this place, just a beautiful, a beautiful sound. So we are, you might be wondering what series we're in. Um, I, I'm, I'm somewhat of a scattered brain. Uh, you might have noticed this. I, I like to pursue things and then I find something else that's interesting and that glitters and I'm jumping over there and trying this. And you might be thinking that's what's happening with this serv- uh, the sermons, that we've been just all over the place. But in fact, it hasn't been scattered. It has been a deepening of an idea. So what's happened is we started out with Follow Jesus, and we were going to do the Sermon on the Mount. The problem was, as I got to chapter 5, verse 27, and then going to be preaching next on uh, verse uh, 31 to 33, about adultery and about divorce. And the challenge was, when I got to that, I realized that our culture, we don't have a really good handle on this topic, and this topic is so emotional, There are so many people that have been impacted by divorce, by unfaithfulness in our world. I would suggest that every single person here, I don't think this would be an exaggeration, to say everybody has been touched by divorce somehow. Uh, Would that, I I think I'm seeing nodding heads out there. Um, I know my family has. I know every other family that I've ever spoken to has a family member or a parent or a child or somebody that's experienced it. So when I came to that text, I came very cautiously and I said, well, before we can talk about what breaks a marriage, we should probably talk about what marriage is. And so we talked about covenant. And that's when we started that, that series. So we were doing Follow Jesus and then we deepened down into uh, marriage and divorce and remarriage, that series. And then when I realized, I was like, well, hold on, we're talking about a husband and a wife, but we don't even know what a woman is in this culture. So we're gonna have to talk about what a woman is and what a man is. And we're gonna have to talk about raising those children. What does it mean to raise these children to become the kind of people that make covenants and get into marriages? Because remember, when we get back to what Jesus is talking about, it's gonna be about the breaking of that. What causes a one flesh union to be broken? And that's what we're going to talk about, but not today. Because I thought we were going to have the African Children's Choir, and I thought, hold on, African Children's Choir, I shouldn't probably start on divorce. Uh, That's not going to be the topic to be talking about. So I said, no, let's instead talk about the wisdom of God. Let's talk about the wisdom of God in the cross. And here's the amazing thing, is that God's always got a plan. And I think the plan today and the reason why he brought me to this text is that we need to submit ourselves to the word of God on every topic. There's so many topics out there that, that we uh, want to do what we want. Sure, we'll submit on certain ones, but when they touch our hearts, we go, yeah, I'd rather do my own thing here. And I think when we get to divorce, 
we're going to have to go, okay, I've got a lot of emotionality because of my history. I've got a lot of emotionality because of my kid's history. And even if we choose to do something different, we all need to come and say, yes, we, disagree. we didn't do what it says in the Bible, but we still agree that the Bible's true and that what it says is right and God will forgive us for whatever we've done. However, we still come submitting to this text and it is because it is the wisdom of God. Okay. So the text to be able to dig into this wisdom of God is 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 1, and we're looking at verses 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world, through the wisdom, its wisdom, did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. The word of the Lord. We're going to come into a time of prayer here, and I'm going to have to ask you for a little bit of help. Because while I can recite the Lord's Prayer uh, when I'm lying down, when I can recite it uh, in the car, the minute I get up in front of people, I go, what was those words again? Now, I've said it a thousand times, but I'll forget. So what we're going to do is I'm going to start off as we're praying, and then I'm going to call you guys in to pray with me so that you guys will join in in saying the Lord's Prayer. So please pray loudly to help me, okay? I want you to help me out here. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gathered us here. Lord, to come and submit to your word, it is our greatest joy to submit to this word. Lord, it's hard. Our flesh doesn't want to. The world doesn't want us to. And people in our lives don't want us to. Yet, Lord, we come. Lord, much in our brokenness and our need, come ready to say, Lord, have your way in our lives. Lord, take your word and shape us to fit you. Lord, we come also needing to just reach out to you with these words that you've taught us. And we all pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you so much. So wonderful to be able to pray together. So my first day at Western University was a big deal. I'd grown up in London, and my parents regularly talked about how much they hoped that one day I might go to Western. 
This dream took a while to come true because remember, I'm all over the place. So I tried every program. I tell you, I was in the nursing program. You can believe it, it's true. I was in the nursing program. They told me when I was in the nursing program that I was terrible. Uh, they weren't shy about it. They, they couldn't believe, understand it though. My marks were some of the highest in the class, but when I was doing the nursing work, I was terrible. They're like, how is it that the book work doesn't translate into the world? So uh, somehow it didn't. And so I tried, well, the next thing, of course, would be forestry, because so, I didn't know what else to do. So I was like, well, if it's not a nurse, let's go the opposite direction. So I ended up in Peterborough uh, in forestry. But anyway, by the way of God's way, he brought me back to where I was supposed to be, which was Western, specifically at King's College to do a degree in religious studies. And just uh, like any first-year student, I was overawed by the size of the school, by the thousands and thousands of students, and by the brilliance of the professors. In my initial exposure to these brilliant professors, I believed that the sun and moon rose at their command. They were so smart. I believed they were somehow different, somewhere, somehow above us, lowly students, these run-of-the-mill human beings. They were a step above. So I thought that I needed to listen to everything that they said, even when it seemed a little bit odd to me. Here's the thing. I was in religious studies. So the odd things that they were saying concerned things like the Bible, the Old Testament, miracles, and even Jesus himself. What I didn't know was that the university's brand of Christianity was very liberal indeed. And it was part of the reason I found it so odd. I had grown up in an evangelical church. Only later did I learn that they didn't hold to the inerrancy of God's word, that there's no error in it. Um, the, they didn't hold to the sovereignty of God, that God is all-powerful and all-wise and all-knowing. Um, and in some cases, some of the professors didn't even believe in the divinity of Christ, that he was actually God's true and eternal son. At that point, all I knew was that they were smarter than me and that I had to believe them. I had to listen to them. This left my faith on very shaky ground. I didn't know what to believe. There was a point where I wasn't sure if I should believe at all, if I should become an atheist and not believe anything. When I got to the bottom of what I would call this spiritual depression, I realized I had to make a choice. Was I going to put my faith in Jesus, no matter the consequences, no matter the difficulty, no matter the evidence that is marshaled against my position by brilliant professors or not. By the grace of God, I made the choice that I would continue to put my faith in Jesus. I was a Christian, but I was being pulled away from it, and I returned by the grace of God to put my trust in Jesus. And honestly, it came down to that. I know there's a lot of evidence against uh, what I believe, but what am I going to believe? And I said, I'm going to start with this. Jesus is my Savior. That's it. That's all I could know. I was going to build my life, my education, uh, on this future, uh, on my future on Jesus, on his, and on his revealed word, and in the power of the Spirit. As you can imagine, after this decision, I became a well-known pain in the butt for all my professors because I was no longer meekly imbibing the swill that they were offering. Little did I know that 25 years later, I'd be in the same position in the Presbyterian church, in the same denomination. Oh, I wouldn't have thought that because here's the thing. The Presbyterian church has a, a blessed history 
of some of the greatest theologians, the greatest biblical scholars, the people that just loved the Lord and were willing to sacrifice so much to be able to see the gospel go forth. If we could go back in history, if we could go back 50, 60 years, we would see people that would resonate deeply with what we believe. We aren't as far sometimes as we think we are from, that, that, uh, from the Presbyterian church, especially in its history. It had a great and glorious history, but it has fallen and we have to make a decision as it's walking away, what are we gonna believe? How are we gonna stand? And here's the thing, Lakeshore, we are at that crossroads right now. Will we submit to the wisdom of the world of the liberal PCC that reinterprets the Bible to fit cultural, the cultural moment? Or are we gonna hold to the scriptures no matter what as they were given to us, as they were revealed to us? Whether the issue is LGBTQ+, or divorce separation, or abortion, or any other ethical, moral, political, whatever issue, are we gonna stand on what humans tell us? Or are we going to stand on what God tells us? Are we gonna stand with human wisdom or God's wisdom? This morning, I believe Paul is making the case specifically that salvation through the cross is wisdom from God that we must depend on. I wanna expand that a little bit. And what I hope to show is that the wisdom of God is not only present in the cross, but in all the biblical writing that leads to the cross and all the biblical writing that looks back to the cross. All human history, if you put it out on a line, you could imagine that the center point of that is the cross. Everything before it looks towards it and everything after it looks back to it. This is the defining moment of humanity, of human wisdom. And I I would suggest that is where we take our stand. This will set the basis for my return in August to take you through the bio, what the Bible teaches about divorce, separation, and remarriage. Our first point this morning, the wisdom of the cross, verses 18 to 20. One of the dangers for pastors and professors alike is that we like to sound smart. We like to sound wise in our own ears. We like to, to use the big words, right? And here's the thing, we can do it because of all the reading and research we do. We're in it all the time. We can write things that sound so impressive that no one understands them. And this is, the, this is what you do, right? You go to a congregation that you don't know and you speak with such complicated words, nobody can debate you because nobody knows what you're saying. But it sounded really religious, so they just kind of go, oh, okay, sounds good. Uh, To some, this is what they want at church. This is what they want at university. They want a challenge to understand what's being taught. Because when you can understand something that's difficult that nobody else can really understand, that means you're smarter than the average person. You're a little bit, you get it. Oh, look at these people over here. They don't have any clue where the pastor's going, but I know because I'm smart. However, seeking knowledge just for the challenge it offers isn't a good thing. It's actually a problem, it's pride. What we should be doing is using whatever wisdom that we have to make what is deep and important easy to understand and easy to apply. And when we turn to the gospel, this is exactly what we find. It's something that is eternally deep and important. The sacrificial love of God. 
But because it's so easy to understand conceptually, people reject it. It doesn't have the wow factor that a really great philosophical argument has or a theological argument or a scientific argument. As such, this makes the message of the cross abhorrent to the wise of the world. If a child can understand it, that there's no virtue in figuring it out. To the smart person, this would make it childish at best and foolish at worst. The whole liberal slide in Christianity comes from wanting to be considered wise in the eyes of the world. I actually don't think it's a bad heart. It's not a bad heart necessarily. It's a desire to be thought of as wise. Wise in the world, wise in the university, wise in the political office, wise in their own eyes. The desire to be considered wise is driving them away from the hard truths of the Bible and towards cultural relevance. This is a dangerous road for liberals to be on because it's a dead-end road for them. It's a dead-end road. At some point, the world is going to keep pushing against what you teach and saying, that's not wise, believe this instead. And I think, you know, in a desire to be culturally relevant, they keep walking that road. But at some point, they're going to ask you to do what? To remove the cross. That's the ultimate goal. Keep moving, keep pushing, and eventually say, if you want to be considered wise in our eyes, you need to remove the cross. If you remove the cross, you're no longer Christian. The cross, you see, is utter foolishness to the world. To the world, the cross is irredeemable foolishness. It doesn't align with worldly wisdom. Messiahs come and rule the world. They do not come and be crucified and serve the world. But it's this reason, because they don't get this, that they're perishing. They are rejecting the wisdom of the cross. While we who are being saved receive the cross as the wisdom of God. Through God's wisdom, humanity has been divided up. Here's the thing. It's been divided up into those who view the cross as foolishness and those who view it as the power of God. The world is divided in only two directions. All these other ways that we divide our, our society up culturally, they're, not, they're, they're just surface-level division. There's only one division. First, we're one. We're all sinners in need of grace. We're needing a Savior. The only division that is of, of any material value is that some know Christ and some don't. That's the, that's the division that separates. The ones that view the cross as the power of God do so because they have been saved by it. They have laid down their burdens, they have laid down their crowns, and they have been freed from sin by the cross unto salvation and a transformed life. The mistake I make I still make this sometimes, and many of us have made, is that we try to be relevant to our culture, to be wise in the eyes of our culture, to make the message of the cross appealing. Here is an important truth that you need to know. The cross is not appealing. Our message that says, you must die to yourself as your Savior died for your sins is not appealing. Our message that says you have to follow, follow Jesus in the foolishness of cross-carrying, taking up your cross and carrying it, 
is not attractive. It never will be. This doesn't resonate and will never resonate with the wise of the world. It resonates only with those who realize that they can do nothing to save themselves, that they are not good enough, that they're not smart enough, and they need a savior. So attempting to reason people into the kingdom of God is uh, never gonna work. Uh, They won't accept the cross. The reason why is revealed actually in verse 19. Paul here quotes Isaiah chapter 20, verse 13, where God, since the Israelites were far from him, prevented them from understanding what was going on or what he was going to do, what he was going to do. God does the same thing in our day. He frustrates those who claim to be wise in the world, who claim to have special knowledge. In verse 20, the idea is repeated in a rhetorical manner. In our day, the verse might go something like this. Where is the politician? Where is the podcaster? Where is the scientist of our age? Where are those who focus and hope only on the here and now? Where are the people who are respected in our day? Where are the people who have received the adulation of the crowds and and as they reveal their worldly wisdom? Paul's suggestion is that all the wisdom and all the wise people and all the knowledge uh, that people have have used in this world just for the here and now um, has caused them and led them towards a perishing future rather than a new future in God. When they have no relationship with God, it doesn't matter how wise or how smart or how influential you are, it's leading you down the wrong road. The one piece of knowledge that conditions everything else we may ever know or discern is the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and him crucified. You've maybe heard that, you know, culture cultures like lenses that you put on and you view the world through those cultural lenses. What I'm suggesting to you is put on the lenses of the cross. That when you become saved, you're now supposed to see the world through the cross. This cross becomes something that changes the way we view everything else, the way we understand knowledge. Every other path to lasting meaning, lasting purpose, lasting life, lasting knowledge is all garbage. Nothing else can do what Christ crucified has done. He has changed us. He's transformed everything. Our second point, the foolishness of the world, verses 21 to 23. Uh, verse 21 uh, re-emphasizes the, uh, the situation the world finds itself in. The very wisdom they believe to be so great, so wonderful, isn't all it's cracked up to be. You have to know that many of the Corinthians uh, in Paul's day loved seeking out the newest philosopher, the newest piece of wisdom. They wanted to uh, follow the newest smart guy. And, uh, people don't change, right? I do this. Uh, does anybody else po- listen to podcasts? Okay, yeah, there are a few people out there. I love listening to podcasts, and I'm always looking for the new smart guy, right? So Jordan Peterson came along, and I was, I was on that gravy train. Like, I was just riding that. I loved that guy. He was so good. He had so many great things to say. Joe Rogan has some really brilliant things to say. But, hey, okay, I know that he's not maybe the, the easiest guy to listen to when you've got uh, nice, pure ears like, like I do. You know, I haven't heard all these bad things. And so you listen to Joe Rogan, and you become more worldly wise. Um, but this is the, this is the, the world of, of we're looking for wisdom. That's we, we, a human desire, and the Corinthians have this in spades. They really want to find wisdom. So they, they go out, and we'd go to a sporting event. They would go watch philosophers debate. 
And they would kind of pick their sides. This was a big deal. They would go watch these, these people. In these philosophical debates, the debaters were trying to win, trying to defeat their opponent by being smarter, by being wiser. If they won, it was to their benefit because people would seek them out, right? People would sit at their feet and learn from this, which was a financial, beneficially good thing. But God purposely, here is the interesting thing, God purposely keeps the wisdom of the cross from these people. People who would use it to elevate themselves. Look how smart I am. Look what I know. Let me dispense this knowledge to you. This was one of the problems that the Catholic Church ran into. Now, there's a lot of reasons why it ran into this, and I'm not, I'm not condemning it here. Um, but one of the problems was is that because of an elevated clergy, the priests became the dispensers of wisdom, right? You didn't know you had to go to someone who would tell you what it was. And in its purest form, in its best form, that was a good thing. You know, these people were good. But the problem is, if you got a bad actor or somebody who wasn't a good priest... They could dispense things that weren't true and you didn't have any way to challenge it. So the dispensing of, of gospel truth is supposed to be at the very, uh, at the level of the population. All people are supposed to access this. And the gospel's been written in such a way, shared in such a way, that anybody can understand it. Anybody can get to this. He keeps, and here's the interesting thing, he keeps that wisdom from the wise. There's great value in God not allowing wisdom to be the key to knowing him. One theologian says this, in the cross, God puts both Jew and Greek, wise and foolish, trained and untrained, on the same level, canceling out all human enlightenment on the subject of salvation or redemption. You can't know it except by the work of the Spirit. Instead, in his sovereign will, he gifted wisdom to all those who by faith would trust in him, who would believe what was proclaimed by preachers even when it seemed foolish. And what was this foolish message? Just what we've already been talking about, that salvation would come through a crucified Christ. The cross is foolishness not only because God willed it to be so, but also because people of how people believe something is determined as true. Now this is where you gotta put your thinking caps on. This is important. The cross is foolishness not only because God willed it to be so, but also because of how people believe something is determined to be true. People have differing opinions on what counts as proof or evidence that warrants belief. The first thing Paul says is that the Jews look for signs. This is no different than the scientist today or the philosopher. If you want me to believe something, they might say, give me incontrovertible proof and then I will believe. In other words, let God meet my standards for what warrants belief, and then I'll believe in him. As if God could ever be coerced into meeting your standards for belief. It's the other way around. What counts as evidence is determined by God's wisdom and truth, not ours. He determines what counts as warranted uh, belief and what counts as proof. But hey, even the Jews didn't get this, so we're in good company. They want signs. They want what will make them believe. And what does God give them? He gives them a sign, but not the sign that they want. They get a crucified Messiah who rises from the dead. But they didn't think that was good enough. They want a king who wipes out the Romans, puts the Jews at the center of the universe. That's the miracle they want. Then there's the Greeks, by which he, also, he means all Gentiles. That's all those who aren't Jews. 
They seek wisdom, it says. Of course, wisdom itself isn't bad. We can all be thankful for the people that are wise in the sciences who give us uh, these wonderful medical interventions uh, that help us when we're sick. We appreciate that wisdom. We're thankful for the engineers who make life more enjoyable and easier on a day-to-day basis, building everything from cars and bridges to clean water and electricity. The problem is when wisdom becomes self-centered. What will, and they start asking, what can I know that will help make me wise and rich? That's, that's the problem, is when w- wisdom is used in that way. Paul, instead of giving signs to the Jews and words of wisdom to the Gentiles, preaches true wisdom, Christ crucified. Notice it says that the gospel is preached. The word preach means to herald or to proclaim a message. We're not to create a message. In other words, what a preacher does and what you're supposed to do if you're talking to your neighbor is not come up with something unique, something creative, something new. Why? Because if it's new, it's assuredly not the gospel. The gospel is an ancient teaching. The gospel that Jesus was crucified to pay the price for our sins is a message from God himself. We have no business to embellish it or try to make it more attractive because in doing so, we're gonna mar its beauty. We're only to herald the message. We're to proclaim it, which is great because it makes being church a lot easier, right? You don't have to be creative. You don't have to be super creative, even though creativity is good. You don't have to be all that wise, although wisdom is surely a good thing. All we have to do is be good at heralding the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Is that going to make us popular? No. How could it when the world rejects the cross? When they find it a stumbling block and others see it as foolishness? Our third point, the wisdom of God. Verses 24 to 25. But through all this sign and wisdom seeking, God has a plan. Note that it's his plan and not ours. It's not us who thought, you know what? Um, I think I need to be saved. That would be a really good idea. I feel lost. I think I need to be saved. It wasn't us that thought of that. It was God. It says in the text, God called us. It was God who loved us, not because of anything we'd done, but because it was his good will. It was his good pleasure to save us. Part of saving us was transforming our minds through the power of God. As a result, not one person, not one Christian here, not one true Christian anywhere in the world can be proud of being a Christian as if it accomplished something great. We didn't do anything. It was God who saved us by the working of the power of the cross in our lives. By his powerful cross, God transforms us. So the cross is no longer foolishness, it is the wisdom of God. Think about it. When you look at the cross, what do you see? What do you see when you look at the cross? You don't see a torture device. You don't see a torture device. Romans... People back in the early times definitely would have seen a torture device. You don't see it as a symbol of oppression. And yet there's many in our culture that would absolutely see it that way. What's changed? Your mind. God has changed you. As a result of this transformation, when you look at the cross, what do you see? You see something beautiful. You see something lovely. You see something that you're grateful for. When you look at the cross, peace comes into your heart. Why? 
because you've been transformed. Sometimes we don't even know it. It's so normal for us, we forget God has done a work in your life. Uh, This sense that you have that all is going to be well because God's wisdom has sent his son isn't something you came up with. It's something God implanted in you. And you love the cross now. It's something that you go to and meditate on. I'd like to call the worship team up right now. We're going to do something a little different uh, here today. But friends, our society is lost and without rudder. In fact, societies have always been this way. Uh, From the very beginning, apart from Jesus Christ, apart from faith in him, apart from the cross, they've been lost. While the world is running around looking for some sign, some wisdom to tell them what they want to hear, we stand here at Lakeshore preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and we preach biblical wisdom and we will continue to do that for as long as we are here. Many reject this message. For them, the cross is a stumbling block. It's foolishness. But for us who are being called, who are being saved, we live our lives by this power and wisdom of God. We live our lives by the cross. I'd like to leave you today, instead of with a prayer, we're going to sing our prayer. I want to leave you with a hymn and a wonderful image that I'd like you to meditate on it. If you know the song, you can sing along. Thank you for listening. We hope that this podcast has blessed you today. And we would appreciate it if you liked, shared, and subscribed to our channel. Or maybe you would like to partner with our ministries. Just go to lsa.church forward slash give. Or if you're ever in our area, we would love to see you in person. Until next time, be blessed, and we'll see you soon.